last night at those who signed this uh, public specific commitment on the basis of their having read the word so much and their having prayed to God, confessing their sins and their failures, appealing to him to rescue them from Persian domination, they, they signed this agreement. Let's read the agreement that they signed. These are detailing the specific things that the people are signing and committing themselves to. So we are in Nehemiah 10, verse 28 to 39. Now the rest of the people, the priests, and the Levites, the gatekeepers, and the singers, and the servants, and all those who had separated themselves from the temple and the angel of God. Uh, their wives, their sons, their dependent daughters, all those who had knowledge and understanding, are joining with their their, their nobles and their take, and are taking on themselves the courage of the walking God's law, which is given through Moses, God's servant, and to keep and to observe all his commandments of all the commandments of God our Lord, and his ordinances and his statutes. And that we will not give our daughters to the people of the land, but take their daughters for our time. As to 
Okay, notice some things about this commitment that they're making. In verse uh, 28 at the end, you see that this includes young people who had understanding. They're all making the commitment, including anybody who had uh, enough maturity to have understanding. And what are they committing themselves to? Well, in general, in verse 29, they're committing themselves to obey God's commandments. But they give some specifics here. They're probably, they probably write down specifics that they had problems with. That's what we'd often do. You know, we are committing ourselves to keep God's laws. That means we're not going to murder anybody. But that's probably not something that we are overly tempted by. And so we may not need to uh, give as much attention to that as some of the areas that we see that we really need to work on. So there are three basic areas that they talk about in verse 30 that we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons we are more influenced by other people than we think and there was a problem with them intermarrying there had always been that concern even before they went to the land Moses made it clear from the Lord that they were not to intermarry the peoples of the land that is a problem throughout the return from captivity period. We see in Ezra 9 and 10 that they married foreign wives and they had to separate from them. We see that problem in Malachi also. We're going to see it later in the book of Nehemiah. This was not a racial thing. This is not that God wants to keep the pure Jewish blood. This is a spiritual thing. Foreigners who would truly abandon their religion and convert to worshiping the true God were accepted, people like Ruth. But those who did not, these true foreigners, they were not to intermarry with them, and so they make this agreement that they won't do that. 
You know, our culture is really offended by this distinctive message of the gospel. By the claim of Jesus that there's no other way to the Father but by Him. And so, in our culture, we have a hard time with the idea, well, you mean somebody in a different religion you don't believe is as good as you are or whatever. And the fact is, there's only one God. And there's only one Messiah. And there's only one way. And that has nothing to do with us. That has everything to do with the God who made us all. It is false to say that all religions are equally valuable. You know, in, in our culture, religion is just man's attempt to find God. But what we understand is that God has revealed himself to us. And that he has specified how we are to live. And the idea of being closely associated with people who are not believers is certainly a very weakening thing for us. And so they just make the commitment. We're not going to allow our children to intermarry with foreign uh, wives and husbands. The second area, in verse 31, no letting the peoples of the land uh, to come and the Sabbath day to sell or buy or on any holy day. There's a lifestyle thing. You know, keeping the Sabbath holy and not working on it was a challenge. And why did suppose it was so hard not to work on the Sabbath day? Exactly. It's a greed thing. So you've got these foreigners who are wanting to trade on the Sabbath day, and maybe they thought the presence of these foreign traders was kind of a loophole. You know, I mean... The foreign merchants weren't prohibited from selling on the Sabbath day. After all, they're not under the Sabbath law. So what keeps us from buying from them? The work's really being done by the foreigners or whatever. And uh, Nehemiah and, and the people here have been making this agreement say, we're not going to do that. We are going to keep the Sabbath day truly holy. We're going to keep the holy days holy. There were uh, seven holy days per year that they were supposed to observe as Sabbath day. They were, they were days that, that they were to be just as strict about and not working as they were uh, on the Sabbath day. And then you've got the Sabbath year. You remember every seventh year, they were not supposed to work the land, they were supposed to forgive debts and so forth, and he says they're going to do that. Can you imagine? Just a year every seven years, you don't plant, you don't harvest, you don't work the whole year. You know, wow, you're missing a whole year's worth of crops. What if there's a drought in the eighth year and all that sort of thing? Test their faith, but they make that commitment to keep that holy to the Lord. And then in 32 to 39, you've got all the contributions to maintain the temple and the temple personnel. There's the third of the shekel tax uh, to maintain the house of God. You know, it's one thing to build the temple. It's another thing to maintain it. They've got all the offerings and sacrifices. The wood supply, because somebody's got to keep the fire going in the, uh, on the altar. And so they, they decide who's going to do that. The first fruits, God gives, gets the best. He gets the first. It's presumptuous of a man to enjoy something before he's first given God his part. And uh, even the Levites were expected to give a tenth of the tenth they received. The tithe went to the Levites, but then they were supposed to tithe as well. God's special servants are not exempted from the command to give. 
And so you've got all of these specific, detailed commitments as to what they are agreeing and committing to do. And in those things, you can see that the Lord is the Lord of relationships, verse 30, the Lord of time, verse 31, and the Lord of possessions, in verses 32 to 39. So you can see as you read that, the great detail and the great specificity, I think that's the word, they're very specific. That's what we need. When we make a commitment that's written, that's uh, definite, that's public, make it specific. That's what we were talking about last, uh, last night. Comments and questions on all this section? Sean? It's just such a really a good example, I know for me, about being all in and giving everything you have to God, no matter how hard it is. Amen. Other thoughts? Jim. Yeah, excellent point. You know, where did they come up with all these things? Well, they had been reading and, and they were committing themselves to do exactly what God had commanded. Good point. Other thoughts? Dan? It's interesting that this is, it seems like it's a man-made document and a man-made commitment based on God's word and it's a part of God's word now. And that God would be there working through the, through the teachers and through the prophets, but it seems like they created something based on God's word that can be a part of God's word. If we work hard with God's word, we can make, you know, we can make good commitments and learn, learn what we need to do. Mm-hmm. That's a great pattern for us, I think. Right, anything else? We'll look at chapter 11. We're back to the problem that we saw uh, in chapter 7, and that is there's hardly anybody that lives in Jerusalem. So in chapter 11 and verse 1, now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, but the rest of the people passed lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine tenths remained in the other cities. And the people blessed all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. So, I mean, we need to populate Jerusalem. And how do they decide who comes into Jerusalem? They cast lots. What's the point of casting lots? It's random. And? It's fair, and you rely more on God to get the answer. God is deciding how this random lot is going to fall, so this is really giving to God the right to choose who comes in. He decides the outcome. The last verse of Proverbs 16, verse 33, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. So, what they wanted was really secondary to what God wanted. They needed to surrender to his will. However, it looks to me like here, you also have some who just volunteered to move in. Some were not bound by lot. They just said, okay, I'll do it. Isn't that great? It's encouraging to see some. Who would want to uproot 
and, and to have to build a house and all this sort of stuff. But some were willing because they wanted to move to the holy city. Um, you know, it, it's encouraging that they were willing to obey what the lot said. And when the lot fell on them, they were willing to go. But even better, some who without that requirement, you know, voluntarily moved. And I don't know how many of them uh, did it as a volunteer, but that, that's encouraging to me that some did. So you've got basically a tithing principle here. 10% move into Jerusalem, and the other 90% stay out in other cities in the outlying area. Now the people who went into the city, that's starting in verse 3. You've got various people from Judah, from Benjamin, and from Levi that form the nucleus of these people who are going into Jerusalem. You have some priests and, and Levites and so forth, and you see that all through from starting in verse 3 down to verse 24. And he mentions various specific people. You've got gatekeepers in verse 19. You've got temple servants in verse 21. An overseer and singers in verse 22. Notice verse 23. For there was a commandment from the king concerning them and a firm regulation for the song leaders day by day. Uh, worship's too important to be left unplanned. So there's a lot of organization, personnel, and so forth for the worship. These are the people that are moving into Jerusalem uh, to be able to inhabit the city of God. Comments and questions on all of this through verse 24. Noah. Yes, I think he is. Uh, from what I can tell, uh, he was. He will leave and go back to Persia and then come back. But as far as I can tell, he was here so I'm just kind of uh, picking up some of the highlights here we're not going to try to read all of this at the moment uh, in 25 to 36 you have the people who live in the other towns around uh, Jerusalem. Um, that's, that's what that part is. And then in chapter 12, in verses 1 to 26, you have a focus on the priests and the Levites. You have the priests that came up with Zerubbabel and Joshua in verses 1 through 7. You had the Levites that came up in verses 8 and 9. You have the high priest, kind of a chronology of the high priests in verses 10 and 11. And then you have a focus on those who are priests and Levites at this time. Uh, the priests from uh, the second generation after the return in 12 to 21. And uh, where that all information came from in 22 and 23. And then the Levites in 24 and 25 from the second generation. So these are some of the people now in these last few verses, uh, to verse 26, that are going to be there in Jerusalem leading and coordinating the worship and the service to God. I mean, it's interesting to me that you've got all this emphasis in the first half of the book on building the wall. And that's what you can see. That's, you know, you get a wall built, that, that's a structure that you can, you know, appreciate and you feel like you accomplished something. 
But a lot of the rest of this is getting people into Jerusalem and then the worship, the organization of the worship and things like that. Because it's, it's important not just to get the wall built, but for what are we doing this for? The, the point of the temple and Jerusalem was to worship and praise and honor God. And so there's so much in the Old Testament on this worship. First Chronicles just goes into great detail. When David was planning for the temple that Solomon would build, on all the worship, the singers and, and uh, the instruments and, and all of the different uh, functions to get the Lord worshipped and honored properly. You can see a lot of focus on that, particularly in these books of like First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, and Nehemiah. Will. Can you comment on why you don't really see that same kind of organization described in the New Testament, New Testament worship? Well, yes, I can perhaps in some ways. I think that you know, there is a more detailed, regimented system in some ways in the Old Testament. The New Testament tends to teach us more with principles and broader areas of application. You know, we're not under a specific tithing requirement, but we're told to give generously. We're not under animal sacrifice requirement where we're told to give our bodies as a living sacrifice. So our commands tend to be more spiritualized and more principles that we have to apply. And somebody may have a better answer than that. Steve? One thing I've thought about with that, because sometimes I'm like, well, why don't we have more specifics, uh, is that in the Old Testament it was for a, a specific physical nation in their culture. And the New Testament is written for people of every culture, of every land, everywhere, where there's going to be some flexibility for people not to, like, be conformed to their culture, certainly, but so that people can do what is helpful for them in their part of the world to, to serve God according to these principles that he lays out. You certainly don't have a specific temple where men must worship today and things like that. There is... Um, broader uh, range of places and things of that nature. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> what's the connection, or how should I see like, chapter 7, when this first problem of there not being, you know, the city of Jerusalem not being populated, like what's going on between chapter 7 and now, you know, here in 11? Um, I think what's going on is that month of spiritual revival in which they're constantly reading the word and they're committing themselves to making those changes. And now chapter seven, in chapter 11, we kind of come back to, we, now we're solving the problem of chapter 7, you know, repopulating Jerusalem, and even now we're going to see the dedication of the wall. So I think 8 to 10 is kind of a section of this spiritual intense revival that's kind of in the middle of what's going on with the wall and the city. Joe? Would it sort of mirror the aspect of focusing on the spiritual before getting active on the physical, like what the book opens with? Yeah, perhaps so. You know, they really need to get themselves right with God and doing the right things. Um, maybe before it makes a lot of sense to worry about populating Jerusalem and celebrating the wall and so forth. Certainly, there, there needs to be the focus on this commitment to serve God. Done. Right on that, there's so much, there's such value in activity. 
that uh, whether our heart's in it or not, somehow we get compelled to start doing and working. And that, that starts to lay a platform for the heart to grow. Then we let the heart grow and we come back to the physical work. So those things really match together, I think. Okay. That's cool. The church is revived many times by a new songbook. It's quite a physical thing, but it helps. Or a new building, or a lot of physical things kind of stimulate us once in a while, and that has some merit. Provides an occasion for that, okay? Makes sense. Mike? While it does have some merit, sometimes people just call it another So we need to kind of fit these together and see that the, we need both sides. Yeah, good point. Okay. Now look at what they do then, starting in chapter 12, verse uh, 27. Now at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites from all their places to bring them to Jerusalem so that they might celebrate the dedication with gladness, with hymns of thanksgiving, and with songs to the accompaniment of cymbals, harps, and lyres. So the sons of the singers were assembled from the district around Jerusalem, from the villages of the Netophathites, and from all these other places. For the singers had built themselves villages around Jerusalem. The priests and the Levites purified themselves. They also purified the people, the gates, and the walls. So they are preparing here to dedicate the wall, the celebration for their dedication, but they've got to purify themselves first. You know, the purification is kind of the first step. Until they're purified, then they can't really worship God acceptably. Um, we need to be cleansed to be holy instruments that work for the Lord. The cleansing is kind of the priority over the, the work and the, the praise that needs to be done. But they do that, and then in verse 31, Then I had the leaders of Judah come up on top of the wall. So I, we've proven we've got a good wall here. We're up on top of it. And I appointed two great choirs. The first proceeding to the right on top of the wall toward the refuge gate. And, and here you see Hoshiah and the leaders with various other people some of the sons of the priests with trumpets and their kinsmen. Notice in verse 36, with the musical instruments of David, the man of God, and Ezra the scribe went before them. At the fountain gate, they went directly up the steps of the city of David by the stairway of the wall above the house of David to the water gate on the east. Then you've got the second choir in verse 38 that proceeds to the left, while I followed them with half of the people on the wall. And you've got all these people. And verse 40, then the two choirs took their stand in the house of God. So did I and half the officials with me. And you've got these uh, priests with the trumpets in verse 41. And the singers in verse 42. And on that day they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced. Because God had given them great joy 
Even the women and children rejoiced so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard from afar. This is a very high point in the book. A, a, an exciting moment of celebration, a joyful time, praising and thanking God. The wall has been rebuilt. The city is being repopulated. God's honor has been restored. And these two choirs that basically start at the same point and circle around the wall are, are leading in the celebration, the joyful worship to God for what has been accomplished. They give credit and, uh, and, and recognition to the Lord. He's the one that has, has enabled them to accomplish this. In everything that's done for the Lord, he deserves the praise and worship for it. And, and it ought to be done in a joyful uh, way. So that's what you've got, uh, kind of as the climax to this wall-building uh, effort. I'm going to have some more things to say about that, but what are some thoughts and comments you have on all of this, uh, down to chapter 12, verse 43? <laughs> Good point, yeah. Don't think the fox is going to uh, be a problem for the wall. J.D.? Um, I guess, a couple quick thoughts. If you, uh, if you felt obligated to visit your parents once a week, you kind of hated it, and you weren't happy about doing it, like your parents would know, and uh, God wants to come before us and rejoice and joy because all things He's done for us, and, uh, you know, when we, we come before Him, we're not... Appreciative and thankful, and he knows, and so they're appreciative. And then I think it's, it's just how important the sanctifying of, of God's people in this city is, and the holiness that we need to have. Amen. Yeah, good point. Other thoughts? Dad? They were supposed to celebrate the act. They did a lot of good work. That wasn't going to get them to heaven, but they need to be happy about. Yeah, it's it's a it's a, a time of celebration and, and feasting. It's a it's a blessing that they've been able to do this, you know, after such a long time. So it's a, it's a great high point in the book. Other thoughts? I, I want to make a point and divert just slightly because I think this is a good place to do this. Notice in verse thirty six. When they are celebrating with the musical instruments of David, the man of God. I, uh, I am impressed, particularly when I look at First Chronicles, with the amount of emphasis that David placed upon musical worship. And First uh, Chronicles chapter 15 and verse 16, David spoke to the chiefs of the Levites to appoint their relatives, the singers, with instruments of music, harps, lyres, loud-sounding cymbals, to raise sounds of joy. In verse 28 of 1 Chronicles 15, Thus all Israel brought up the ark of the covenant of the Lord with shouting, the sound of the horn, with trumpets, with loud-sounding cymbals, with harps and lyres. This is when they brought the ark into Jerusalem. But this is just the beginning. They continued with David's encouragement to institute musical worship before God. 
And, and you see that just constantly throughout the rest of the book of First Chronicles. And uh, you can read the book itself and see that. Look at chapter uh, 23, verse 5 of First Chronicles. 4,000 were gatekeepers and 4,000 were praising the Lord with the instruments which David made for giving praise. And then you can look at First Chronicles chapter 25. And David sets apart various people who were to prophesy with lyres, harps, and cymbals. And uh, you just see that constant emphasis in verse 6 also, as, as uh, David is really responsible for musical worship. Now, one of the things you see happening there, if you tried to just kind of, uh, from the temple onward, if you were trying to summarize the ways they praised and worshipped God, there were two big elements. There were the sacrifices of animals that Moses had commanded, and there was the musical worship that David had commanded. And there were several times in the history of the divided kingdom where they tried to turn back to God's pattern and go back to worshipping him the way God wanted, and when they did that, they would always be turning back to the sacrifices of Moses and the instruments of David. In 2 Chronicles chapter 23, for example, with Jehoiada, who led them to return back to God. 2 Chronicles 23, and uh, in verse 18, Moreover, Jehoiada placed the offices of the house of the Lord under the authority of the Levitical priests, whom David had assigned over the house of the Lord to offer the burnt offerings of the Lord as is written in the law of Moses, with rejoicing and singing according to the order of David. So you have the idea that going back to the law of Moses and to the order of David to, uh, for the worship that they are doing. Hezekiah turned the people back to God. Second Chronicles chapter 29. And in verse 25, he then stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals and with harps and with lyres, according to the command of David and of Gad the king's seer and of Nathan the prophet, for the command was from the Lord through his prophets. The Levites stood with the musical instruments of David and the priests with the trumpets. He speaks again in verse 27 about the instruments of David and, and so forth and so on, and then speaks about the burnt offerings and the rest of that chapter that they offered. When Josiah sought to turn back to the Lord, in 2 Chronicles chapter 34, you uh, see in verse uh, 12 them restoring uh, the, the worship in the temple, the Levites, all who were skilled with musical instruments. In 2 Chronicles 35, 4, notice, Prepare yourselves by your father's households and your divisions, according to the writing of David, king of Israel, according to the writing of the, his son Solomon. And then in verse 6, Now slaughter the Passover animals, sanctify yourselves, and prepare for your brethren to do according to the word of the Lord by Moses. David, Solomon, Moses, their commands summarized Josiah's efforts to return back to the worship that God had given. Then in Ezra chapter 3, you see even in Ezra's day, the same emphasis on returning back to the Lord. In verse 10, now when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel, 
with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel. So, what I am seeing is quite a pattern. From the time of the construction of the temple on, when they wanted to come back to God's pattern, they came back to the sacrifices that Moses had commanded and to the musical worship, the singing and the musical instruments of David that he had prescribed by the word of the Lord. Now the thing that I find really interesting about this for us is that musical instruments in worship were part of God's authority. This was something God commanded and organized through David. This was not something that men just kind of did on their own as they pleased. David told them how to do it. The Lord in the Old Testament essentially took musical instruments out of men's control and put them under his authority. Were there ever a time, was there ever a time in the worship of God's people where, with, where, where God approved of, of instrumental worship that he had not commanded and that he had not organized? You know, every time they go back to the pattern, they worship with the instruments of David. Not just any instrument they wanted, but the instruments that David had commanded. Think about the sacrifices of Moses. Could, could, they, could Josiah or Hezekiah or Ezra or Nehemiah or somebody like that just have kind of worshipped and offered any animal they wanted to and sacrifice in any way they wanted to do it? Well, they couldn't have done that any more than they could have just... Use any instrument they wanted and done it any way they wanted. Now, what if somebody today were to say, well, you know, we believe that we really ought to use musical instruments in worshiping God today. Well, we need to know from the New Testament that that's what God wanted. What if somebody said, we really believe we ought to offer animal sacrifice? In worship today. After all, Moses said to, well, we understand we're not under the old covenant. We would have no more right to use musical instruments in worship today than we would have to offer animal sacrifices in worship today. Now, is it okay for us to barbecue some meat and enjoy that in our home? Yes, it's not connected with the worship of God. We're allowed to eat all meats. Would it be okay to, to, to listen to musical instruments and some sort of a, a, a secular song in our home today? Yes, that would be fine. But when it comes to the worship of God, we are not authorized today to use animals to sacrifice to God or instruments to worship God. You can, you can do this. Go through the psalm. And notice the times that the Psalms command musical instruments in worship. And then go through the New Testament. And notice all the times that God commands singing in worship. And does not authorize the use of instruments. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 5, essentially God tells us the instrument that he wants us to make melody on today. And that's our heart. Not our heart, but our heart. And uh, that's what we ought to do. Somebody said, well, but I've got a talent to play instruments, and I want to use that talent for the Lord. Well, what if you had a talent as a sculptor or a craftsman to make images? And I want to make images 
you know, idols uh, uh, to the Lord. Would that be okay? Well, no, that's not what God wants. You know, we don't just use our talents any way we want to. We use our talents in God-ordained ways. You might have a talent as uh, an exotic dancer or other kinds of things. It would not be at all appropriate for the Lord, even though you could say, but I've got this talent for this. Um, some people say, well, but, but there's hearts in heaven. Why can't we use them here? Well, it says there were things as harps or like harps. I don't know if they were actually physical harps. But think about all the other things you see, at least things like them in heaven, like the temple, the bowls of incense, the golden altar, 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns. I've not known anybody to say that the elders today ought to wear golden crowns or whatever. There's a difference between worship in heaven and the worship that God has authorized and told us to do today. So I think this is a helpful moment to just talk about that because that's such a common thing. Most religious groups in our day believe in worshiping God with musical instruments. But I think how much God focused on that in the Old Testament, how much emphasis, uh, emphasis there is on, on the, the instrumental worship that David authorized and, and instituted and organized in the Old Testament. And then there's just a total lack of any statement to that effect in the New Testament. It's an indication that's not what God wants in the New Testament. As, as God did with many other things, the circumcision in the Old Testament was physical and the New Testament was spiritual. The temple in the Old Testament was physical, the New Testament it's our bodies. And so forth and so on. The, the, the instrument in the Old Testament was physical, the instrument in the New Testament is our heart. It fits that kind of a pattern. Questions, comments, objections, if you have. Joe. Following your argument, some would say you're comparing sacrifices and instruments, but Jesus was our sacrifice, and so that's why we don't do that today. But Jesus wasn't our instrument, our musical instrument, so it's not a fair comparison. I would say that the heart is our instrument today, and it is a fair comparison. <laughs> and maybe in addition, not all sacrifices were sacrifices for sin. Good point. Yeah, good point. Yes. There certainly is a fulfillment in the New Testament of Old Testament types and shadows, but ultimately, we don't do anything in New Testament worship without God's authority. Tim? We never want to presume on God. We only want to do what we know God is pleased with because we respect it and we love it. Somebody had a hand up over here. Yeah, no. Um, so, with instruments music, would you feel that there's a problem with Like, do you feel the tune somehow becomes um, 
sacred because it's not sacred, but um, because it's going because we can hear the change of the word. Yeah, there may be a matter of wisdom judgment, certainly tunes are not either sacred right. or secular. Other thoughts? Questions? Comments? No. Well, I don't know that God's ever authorized us to whistle and praise to him, but uh, I don't know that whistling's exactly the instrument either. Stephen? Um, what do you say to someone who feels like um, you know, I can, in their privacy, like this is something that God has not commanded us to do together in our worship. But in the privacy of my home, with my family, or just by myself, I want to strum my guitar to Amazing Grace, you know, uh, that that's uh, just kind of like what I do collectively. And the things in the New Testament are more for what we do when we get together. Um, is someone taking that route? Yeah, I, I would say, I, as I look at the commands to sing in the New Testament, James 5, is any among you happy, let him sing psalms. I don't know that there's a specific statement that God wants one kind of worship collectively and a different kind of worship individually. As far as I can see, whatever worships God, he wants to simply to sing. And with that, well, you know that there was a special recipe for the incense and things like that, and I think our time is up here, but uh, if you have some more <laughs> leftover comments and questions, we can start with those tonight. Uh, I appreciate the uh, interest and attention and comments. Thank you. Thank you.